Hey, what's up, you guys? This is Bert. I'm the lead pastor at True North Community Church. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. I'm going to have a little something to say to you at the end, but for now, let's dive in. All right, this is week five in a five-week message series called Smoke on the Water. We're talking about the General Slocum disaster. And if you're new or newer to our church, from time to time, we find a place where history intersects with biblical truth, and they just light each other up. And this is, this is one of those moments. Now, we don't we're not have time to unpack the whole thing. There are four messages in this series already online. This is week five. But if you're brand new, the, the quick version is, in June of 1904, there was a group of about 1,300 people from a German congregation on the Lower East Side that were having their Sunday school outing. 1,300 members of the church and people from the community boarded the General Slocum for an outing, uh, a day's outing at the beach. The ship caught fire, and before it was all over, more than 1,000 people had died. For perspective, something like 1,500 died in the wreck of the Titanic. So this was a big, big deal in New York City history. And we asked some pretty, pretty poignant questions. We asked some pointed and poignant questions at, uh, of this incident and said, how could this have happened? In week one, we talked a little bit about our salvation. We talked a little bit about how, well, we talked a little bit in, in plain truth about how tomorrow is not promised to any of us. Yeah? Tomorrow is not a promise to any of us. And it feels like we only talk about this at funerals, but the truth is, we, we, we have a clock, and we don't know how much time we have left, so we're called to live on purpose and for a purpose. We're called to live in response to who he is and what he's done. In week two, we talked about the life jackets on board the General Slocum. Not only were they not buoyant, they were absorbent. That means they became heavy in the water. The thing that people were clinging to to save them was the very thing that took them to the bottom. We talked a little bit about what we're clinging to for our salvation and how we're not saved because we're good. We don't go to heaven because we did good things or were good people. We're saved because we're forgiven. We're saved by God's grace. That's what we cling to. In week three, we talked about the panic that overtook this group of people, the horrible things that happen, happened and happen when groups of people are stricken by panic. We talked about the multiple reports of people who drowned in water shallow enough to stand in because they couldn't stop panicking. We talked about how to slow down a little bit and how to stand on something solid. We talked about, about standing on and building our life on the sure and certain knowledge that God loves us, that he's crazy about us, and he welcomes us in. And then last week we talked about the tragic tale of Michael McGran, the ship's treasurer, who jumped overboard holding the money box and was never seen again. And we talked a little bit about making sure that money isn't the thing that's driving your life. We talked about making sure that we're honoring God in every area of our life, including our finances. And that means tithing first. Today, we wrap this story up with, with two angles. The first, I mean, what a cool way to wrap, wrap this message series up. This, this series, more than any other that I've ever communicated, more than any I've ever preached has had real-world implications for people in our church with regard to historical ties to the event. 
So if you, if you were here uh, last week, we talked a little bit about some people from our church who had ancestors who were aboard the Slocum, who had ancestors who were, who were in the neighborhood. And we talked a little bit about the great-great-grandson of our ship's captain. The captain of the General Slocum was a man named William Van Shake. A couple of weeks ago, I got an email from William Van Shake IV, the ship captain's great-great-grandson, who attends our church online every week. So I had no idea that, that this was going to tie into somebody from our congregation, and we had the opportunity this week to meet. We met for breakfast, got connected, shared some time together, and, 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 and Bill, as I now know him, was kind enough to record a video for us so we could kind of get his perspective on this. He's going to talk about uh, the shame that he carried early on. This was, you know, this is not an easy thing to live with. Most of us don't know our family histories back too far. I don't know anything about my great-great-grandfather. But if you're descended from somebody who played a significant part in history, maybe you know that about your ancestors. But if you're descended, man, if you're descended from somebody who is attached to something terrible in history, it can be a hard thing to live with. So Bill is going to talk to us for a second about an experience he had as a kid when he was actually brought to meet some of the survivors of the wreck. Um, we're going to lower the lights, take a look. This is my new pal, Bill. I have a memory I'd like to share, and I think this is probably the most powerful. Again, I said before, when I was 10, we moved to uh, Huntington from Brooklyn. It was before that. I'm going to say I was somewhere between 6 and 8. I don't absolutely remember. What happened is my dad took me to an actual meeting. They actually, back then, had an annual meeting of the survivors of the General Slocum. Now, we're talking in the mid-1960s, so you'd assume that anybody that would be at that meeting, even if they had been virtually a newborn baby, they would be at least in their mid-60s. If somebody had been a child, they might be in their 70s. If they had been a, you know, a, you know, a, a late teen, they might have been in their 80s at that time. And I remember, to this day, worrying, how would these people accept us? How did they feel that knowing our relative, and again, this would have been my dad's great-grandfather, how would they feel about us coming to this meeting and sitting with them, knowing what happened and knowing that my great-great-grandfather was blamed for the, this uh, heinous, terrible thing uh, that so many people had responsibility for. In no way, shape, or form do I minimize what happened. It was terrible. I'm glad it changed things. I wish it had never happened. So I'm not trying to say anything but that. But instead, as a, again, I was six, seven, eight years old, we went there and it was actually held at somebody's house in Queens. And I'm gonna say there was a dozen, maybe 15 people there. And instead of them holding animosity, they welcomed us. They were so happy to know that my dad took the time to go there to help Honor the memory of, of their loved ones, their relatives. Then keep in mind, probably every single person there lost a family member, a loved one, somebody close to them, uh, you know, many people close to them, maybe many family members. And then they lived their entire lives. And during their lives, they somehow got in their hearts the ability to forgive. Pretty cool, right? I don't know, let's clap it up. I mean, it's fun. Um, amazing stuff. 
Bill's watching online this morning, so Bill, thank you so much for being so gracious and so kind and generous with us. It was funny, I, I met Bill, so I'm, we met this week for breakfast, and we're walking into breakfast, and I didn't know what he looked like. He knew what I looked like because he watches online. I didn't know what he looked like. Um, so he walked in, and I just didn't expect him to look like that, and I don't know why, but I expected him to look more like a boat captain. I was just stupid, but like I was kind of, I, I dumb, right? Stupid, but I, I expected him to have like a pea coat and a pipe and a beard. And all, you know, I was just dumb, but uh, you know, he looks like a regular guy. So uh, Bill and I had a wonderful visit, and he was kind enough to share his story with us and, and talk to us a little bit about, yeah, like he walks, can you imagine that? You're eight years old, you're six, you know, and, and you're learning that your great-great-grandfather was the ship's captain at, at, during this disaster, and you're going to a meeting of people who are survivors of this event, so they all lost family members, and every one of these people at this event lived through something traumatic all those years ago that's still probably giving them nightmares, and, and, and he was worried, are we going to be shamed, are we going to, like, what's this going to be like? And they just welcomed him in. With, with love and with care. And, and that, surely that is a picture of how some of you have approached the church. Right? There have, to, there have to be some people in the room now who, when you came into church, you were sort of thinking, I don't know, I don't know if I belong here. I'm not sure if, these, if I'm going to be a part of this thing. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be around here. I'm kind of, you know... When you come into church for the first time, there's always that nervous feeling. My grandfather always used to t tell me, like, you know, we, we, we grew up Catholic, but we were never really a big church-going family. But, you know, even for things like a first communion or a confirmation when the family was invited, my grandfather would never go, and he would always say, oh, if I go to church, the whole place will fall down, you know? Uh, you ever heard that? You heard, some of you have heard that. Some of you have said that about yourselves, you know? If I show up, the whole place will collapse. Listen, that's that's... Not only is that obviously, you know, not the case. Some, well, some of you guys, especially if you're an 80s kid, you think it's going to be like an 80s movie, like where you walk in and there's a record scratch and everyone goes, you know, like, like, like you just, you feel self-conscious. When you walk into church for the first time, it's weird because, because you know about your past, you know what you've done, and you don't know what anybody else has done. So you're comparing what you know about yourself to what you don't know about everybody else. Did you follow that? You compare what you know about yourself to what you don't know about everybody else. So you know that you're messed up, but you don't know how messed up all the rest of us are. And you think we're all holy. You think church people are church people, and church people are holy. And here I am going to go try to mix with the holy people, and you know you're not a holy people because you're, you're messed up. And you just think, and, and, and this kind of thinking, like it, you're two steps down the line, and you're thinking, well... Church is for Jesus people, and Jesus is for church people, and I'm not a church people or a Jesus people, so I should probably stay away, and the truth is, church is for everybody, and Jesus is for everybody, and we're all messed up. So that's kind of where, yeah. The second, the second story that dovetails with the remarkable story of our boat captain's great-great-grandson is the story of another eight-year-old boy, Willie Kepler, who snuck on board the General Slocum that day against the wishes of his parents. His parents had forbidden him to go, but he got on board the ship anyway. We're not entirely sure how, except to say it was 1904, and Willie Kepler was a resourceful and sneaky young man. 
and he got on board the ship. Maybe he got a ticket from a friend. Maybe he got a ticket from a, a local shopkeeper. Maybe he climbed up a rope and got up the ship some, some other way. We don't know how it came to be that he got on board, but we knew he wasn't allowed to be there, but somehow found a way to be a part of the day anyway, because in, those, in 1904, there was no such thing as helicopter parenting. His parents wouldn't have known where he was all day anyway, so him coming home at the end of the day, he probably would have had to explain the sunburn he got, but short of that, it would have been no big deal. Willie Kepler lived. He knew how to swim. So when things went sideways, he jumped overboard and swam for shore, and because he was little enough, perhaps nobody was grabbing at him, and he managed to make it to shore. But now he knew... There was no way to keep his parents from finding out that he was on board the ship. Now it was going to be a big news story. Everyone was going to hear about it. Plus, he was soaking wet. Like, there was no way he was going to be able to avoid his parents knowing. And he understood that that meant he, when he got home, he was going to catch a beating. Like, beat down coming. He wasn't going to get grounded. His parents weren't going to put him in timeout. They weren't going to take away his screen time. They weren't, oh, horror of horrors, going to take away his phone for a day. No, he was going to catch a beating. It was 1904, and that's what was coming. So, Willie, Kel Willie Kepler didn't want to catch a beating, so he didn't go home. He spent the night on a park bench in Harlem. And, obviously, his parents thought... He was dead. When he didn't come home after the day's activities and when others said they saw him, his parents spent that night thinking he was dead. So they're mourning the death of their son, wishing they had done a better job, wishing they could, have, wishing they could undo this somehow. Willie wakes up the next morning on his park bench and of course, this is news all over the city. The newspaper, the daily newspaper, would have been the only official record of the dead. Willie Kepler got a hold of a newspaper, and he read his own name on a list of the dead. And he knew then that his mother would be heartbroken. He knew his mother would be just, just crushed. So he knew what he had to do. He had to face the music. He had to go home, take the beating, and not break his mother's heart, so he did it. He, w he wound his way down back to the Lower East Side. He's made his way through the neighborhood, which was now just a morass of people wailing and crying and searching for information about their loved ones and, and just mourning this awful thing that had happened. He climbs up the steps to his apartment, expecting fully just to be, to be throttled. And of course, his parents see him and they, they, they gasp and they wrap him up in an embrace, and they hug him and love him and kiss him and welcome him home like he never expected. He later told a newspaper, a, a journalist, Willie Kepler later told a journalist, my father even gave me a half a dollar for being a good swimmer. <laughs> like it was totally, the, the reception was, was unlike anything he had expected. And, and, and this, like, if that doesn't illustrate the story of the prodigal son, I don't know what does. Now, if you're new to church, the story of the prodigal son, okay, 
just disclaimer, it happens to be my favorite passage of Scripture, so I preach on it as often as I can without becoming annoying. So, I, I, I've talked about the prodigal son within the last year or two. It wouldn't normally be uh, my, my, my way to return to this Scripture so soon, but this story illustrates it so vividly, we have to read this text. We're going to read it this morning from a translation of the Bible that you are not probably familiar with. It's called the message translation. So it's going to land a little different and sound a little different than the translation you're used to hearing me read from. This is the Gospel of Luke, beginning at chapter 15, verse 11. There was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine. And all through that country, uh, and he, a bad famine all through that country, and he began to feel it. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs and the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants. Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then, Get a prize-winning heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead, and now alive. Given up for lost, and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. So, in this story... That, that Jesus is telling, Jesus is our narrator, Jesus has obvious parallels, right? The prodigal son is us, and the father is God. Yes? Yes! Wake up! The son is us, God is the father. Now understand this, this is a parable. The prodigal son was not a real person. This is a parable. Jesus is telling an illustrative story to show us a point. The point is the nature of God. The point is God's way with us, right? So, so as, the, as, the boy, uh, as the boy returns home, he's got his little speech prepared, yeah? 
He puts together a little speech. He knows he's got some apologies to make, so he puts together a speech. He wants to come to terms. He wants to make terms. You ever, anybody here ever put together a little speech for somebody? Yeah, you got an apology to make. You got something you got to say. You're like, okay, let me get this out. I got a couple things I got to say here. And you, pra- you ever practice that? You practice in your mirror, practice in your car. You ever see somebody talking to themselves in their car and there's nobody there? They might not be on the phone. They might be practicing their little speech. You get a little speech. You get yourself worked up. We're going to come to terms. We're going to find terms. I'm really sorry about what happened. I feel terrible about it. You know, mistakes were made, and we're going to make it better, and maybe if you can forgive me and I can forgive you, we can get past it. You give you a little speech. You do your speech. The boy preps a speech. He's ready to talk to his dad. Dad, I screwed up. I've sinned uh, against heaven and you, and I'm, I'm not going to be your son anymore. We, obviously, that's true. It's obvious I'm not your son anymore, but maybe I could work here as a hired hand. We could come to terms. We could make an arrangement. Let's make an arrangement. Let's make terms. He's got the speech prepped, and as he's approaching the father, the father, it says, runs out to meet him. Now, this is something that would not necessarily land on your ears, but would certainly have landed on the ears of somebody from the first century. Men in the first century did not run. Men in the first century did not run. I would have liked it a lot better then. So nobody, <laughs> nobody runs in the first century. Men especially. Kids do. Men do not. Why? For a practical reason. Men did not wear shorts and track shoes in the first century. They wore robes. Ladies in the room, you ever tried to run while you're wearing a long dress or a long skirt? It's no fun. If you have to run wearing a long dress or a long skirt or a robe, there's only one way to do it. You have to hike up the robe and hike up the skirts so that they don't trip you. And if you have to do that, you look ridiculous. Right? Come on, I calls them like I sees them. You look, people, somebody has to run like that, they look ridiculous. This is not a good look. It's not a dignified look. Men in the first century did not run, particularly the wealthy Jewish landowner being described in this thing. And so everybody expected, as the sun approaches, every, here's, here's how Jesus' audience expected the parable to end. And the son approached the father and gave his little speech. And the father said, not only are you not allowed to be my son, not only are you not allowed to be my hired hand, get off the property. I don't ever want to see you again. And the son spent the rest of his life in abject poverty, riddled with disease, and then he died. Amen. That's what everybody expected to hear. Because if everyone heard that, then the parable would make sense. The parable would be, yeah, don't be greedy or else this will happen to you. Don't be so focused on money or this will happen to you. Don't waste your money or this will be happened to you. You'll, you'll end up like the younger son. Don't, like, that would be a fitting parable. That would be a, a morality play that we could understand. Jesus just takes this in a totally different direction. Not only is the kid not met with, with scorn, the father runs the, fa- the dad hikes up his skirt, he hikes up his robe and runs to meet the kid? Undignified, unheard of. He gets to the boy, hugs him, kisses him. The son starts his speech. He goes, get into it. Dad, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against heaven. Wait, let me check my notes. I've sinned against heaven, and, yeah, and, I'm, and I'm not worthy to be called your son, and, I, and, and maybe I could be a hired hand. And I love this translation. It says, but the father was not listening. He didn't even listen. 
Yeah, 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 that's good, that's good, that's good. Son. Hey, 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 bring clothing, bring clothing, dress him, bring sandals, give him a bath. Like, like, bring the ring, did you catch that? Bring the family ring. The family ring is not just a piece of jewelry. The family ring means this is my heir, this is my descendant, this is my son, fully restored back to sonship. He doesn't even let the kid finish. So some of you, some of you have come back to church after a time away, and we've all spent some time away, haven't we? We've all spent time, we've all spent time away. And I don't just mean from church, I mean from God. We've all had those seasons where we've wandered and been far off. And we come back to God after a season like that, half thinking we're going to be shamed, we're going to be pushed to the side, we're going to be scorned, not necessarily by the church, but by God. How does God operate with all this? We, we come back with our little speeches. We come back with our speeches, and we come back to him, and we say, I'm really sorry, I screwed up again, I did the thing that I always do, and I've confessed it a hundred times, and you keep forgiving me, I'm sorry I did it again, but I'm never going to do it again, and if you could just like, forgive me this one more time, I'll do better, and I'll give more, and I'll sign up for the children's ministry thing like the guy wants me to, and I'll do the thing, and I'll be like, I'll, I'll get in the thing, and I'll just, I'll do, I'll do better, I'll do, do better, I'll do good. And you got terms, you want terms, you're going to offer God terms for forgiveness, right? You got your little speech, and you're going to come in, and, and I'll, I'll make it up, I'll figure it out. God's not listening. He doesn't want that, he doesn't need that, he's just so glad you've come home. He's just so glad you came home. Yeah. You came back. You turned your heart towards home. You returned to him. You're looking to him now. Your heavenly father once again. And, and it doesn't matter. This is the crazy thing about God's love. This is the thing that doesn't make sense about the, the, the prodigal son. It's that it doesn't matter how many steps away from God you take. It's always only one step to come home. It doesn't matter how many steps you take away from God. It, it's only ever one step to come home. The minute you turn back towards God, he runs to meet you, and he runs fast. He meets you right where you are, and he wraps you up with a hug, and you don't need the terms, and you don't need the excuses. All you need to do is return home, like Willie Kepler did to his parents when he was welcome, like William von the IV does when he walks into this place and expects he's going to be shamed and instead is welcomed. That's how God welcomes us in. That's how God welcomes us home. Because we're all of us messed up. We're all of us sinners. We all of us need, need God's grace. So if we could just get it through our head, that we don't have to compare ourselves to everybody else in this room or come up favorably on some sort of a graph or a chart next to everybody else in this room and that we don't need to offer God terms so that he'll forgive us. If we could just come to him like little children, like, like a little boy or a little girl, return to that, that state of childlike faith and go, Daddy, I want to come home. We're welcomed right in. That's how I want to live my life. That's how I hope you guys want to live your lives. With that, let's pray. Father, we love you so much. 
and we've all wandered and we've all been far away and we've all done incredibly stupid things, all made our little speeches, all come back to you for terms, offering our excuses and, and, and wanting to, to make an arrangement with you. Father, would you just, just burn that thinking right out of us? We don't want to operate that way. We, we want to believe. It takes faith, God. This isn't easy to believe. It's just easier to believe that you're ticked it's just easier to believe that you're angry with us because we would be angry with us. But you're not. And you, you, you draw yourself in the scripture so differently. It takes faith to believe that, that you're really like that. So help us find faith to believe that you're really like that. That you feel that way about us. That you welcome us in just without any reservation, Father. Blindly, God. And passionately, you just, you blind yourself to our past. You don't listen to the excuses. You just wrap us up and welcome us home. May we be people that don't take too many steps away from you. And when we do, that we might be quick to take that one step to come back. May this be so in my life. May this be so in all of our lives. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks once again for taking the time to listen. It's an honor to have you with us. If you'd like to support our church financially and help us continue to put this content out there for free, that would be a really big deal to us. We're completely supported by the contributions of the people that come to our church. And if you'd like to help, you can do that online at truenorthchurch.net slash give, or you can do it with a text message. Just text the word True North to 77977 on your cell phone and you'll get a prompt leading you through how to do that. Thanks again for dialing in. See you soon. Bye-bye.